thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. If you are new with us, my name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. And we are so glad that you have chosen to spend part of your weekend with us, whether you're joining us online or in person at the Oregon Stamp Society building. And guys, let me just tell you, each week things uh, continue to change, and we're doing our best to abide by the restrictions that have been put in place by our governor and other uh, government official guidelines. And so we're just going to try to continue to over-communicate that with you. But regardless, we are glad that you are joining with us today. Uh, If you are online, whether it's on Facebook or on our church online platform, feel free to say hello. Let us know that you are uh, tuning in with us this week. We are continuing our series, Kingdom Manifesto, where we have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going verse by verse, and we're in this part of the sermon where there's these um, six areas of relationships that we have been uh, looking at the last couple of weeks. And so uh, last week we looked at lust, and this week we are going to look at what is considered one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus on relationships in the entire New Testament. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be back in chapter 5, where we'll spend our time in verses 31 and 32. Uh, Once again, it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And so the reason this is one of the most difficult teachings in the entire New Testament is this is Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. And so uh, the reason this is so difficult is what we're going to see with Jesus teaching, as we often do, is it is completely contrary to what culture and society often teaches, and it is no different here when Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage. Now, let me note some things on the front end. First off, this is an extremely difficult and painful passage for many of you today. Jesus is going to say some very difficult things, and regardless if you've ever been divorced, all of our families have had someone, whether it was our parents or our grandparents or Maybe it was aunt and uncles, but we've all been uh, impacted and affected by divorce, and then some of us are even remarriage. And so let me just recognize that on the front end. Some of you have possibly been divorced before, and some of you that, that have been divorced, or maybe you're walking through a really difficult season in your marriage, and you're thinking, I don't know if we're going to end up there, but it looks like it could end up there. Let me just say, I want you to hang with us. Hang with me all the way through this sermon. There's going to be times that you're going to be tempted to to just reject this message altogether and you're going to want to shut your laptop and just walk away frustrated. Stick with me. That's that's my ask of you, that you stick with me through the entirety of this message. Because the last thing that I want to do, the last thing that Sojourn Church wants to do is to cause more trauma in your life in regards to this topic. So my goal, really the main point of our sermon this morning, is to accurately and faithfully teach you what Jesus says when it comes to marriage and accurately and faithfully teach you what Jesus says when it comes to divorce and remarriage. The other thing that that I want to say when preaching a text like this one is there's a tendency to try to cover every single possible scenario, kind of the, the what ifs. But I'm going to try to avoid that today for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there's just not enough time. There's all kinds of scenarios and curveballs that we could, we could throw out there. There's just simply not enough time in a, in a one sermon to cover all of those. Now, we can grab coffee or hop on a Zoom call, and I'd be glad to discuss those with you. 
but I'm going to try to um, actually avoid that and not cover all of the topics today. And then we're usually, the other reason is we're usually asking the wrong questions when it comes to uh, these topics. We're usually asking how far can we go towards something and, and how far are we not allowed to go towards something. It's kind of like the, the dating questions. We looked at lust last week. We always want to know where's that line. And so it's, it's no different when it comes to divorce and remarriage. And so I'm going to try to avoid that together altogether today as well. Instead, here's what we should be doing when it comes to this topic. Instead, we should be asking God, God, what is your standard for me? Okay, we want to start there. What is God's standard for me? Not what is even my own standard. What is God's standard for me? What is his heart for me when it comes to, to marriage? What is God's heart for me when it comes to divorce? And what is God's heart for me when it comes to remarriage? And, and how do I run towards his heart and his standards, even rejecting my own in order to do so? So here's what I am going to do today. I'm going to do my best to paint an accurate picture of God's view of marriage. And so this isn't Matt's view of marriage. This isn't even necessarily Sojourn's church view of marriage, other than we do want to replicate God's view. But we want to paint what God's view of marriage is for us. And I want to paint an accurate picture as well of what's God's view of divorce, a really painful subject for all of us. And my hope is that whatever situation that you are in, whether you're married or whether you're divorced or whether you're remarried, or whether your family's been affected or impacted by any of those, that regardless where you are today, that we can apply God's view of marriage and divorce to our life, and that you can apply it to your particular circumstances. Now, the last group I want to address is those of you who are listening this morning who are single. Because the tendency with a message like this, if you're single, you think, this doesn't apply. So maybe you've already shut the laptop. Hopefully you're still with me. But here's what I want to say about that. This could not be further from the truth. That This message is as much for you as it is for anybody else. Here's why. Because the time to get your mind around God's view of marriage and God's view of divorce is now. Right now. Not later. Not once you're married. Not once you found yourself in the heat of the fire in, a, in an argument or a season where you and your spouse just can't get along. And then you think, wow, I should probably figure out what's my view of marriage and what's my view of divorce and what's God's view of marriage and what's, what's God's view of divorce. So single or dating people... Right now is the time to take notes. Take notes. Pull out a notepad or pull up the app on your phone and, and take notes on, man, how does God view this? Because I am single right now, or maybe I am dating right now, but one day I desire and long to get married, and I want to go into that marriage knowing what God's view of marriage is and what God's view of divorce is. Now, keep in mind that this is one of Jesus' most difficult teachings that he ever gave. And so this sermon, in many ways, will lack funny stories. It's going to going to lack a lot of uh, extra humor, and instead it's just going to be uh, stocked full of Jesus' teaching. We're going to look at a few different portions of Scripture in addition to our main one here in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is one of those sermons I'll say, uh, church, buckle up and let's get after it. Now let me pray for us on the front end, and then we'll actually dive into the text itself this morning. God, I just want to come to you. We want to, we want to recognize that this is a really hard uh, teaching. God, as we look week in and week out at different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, and this one being no different. God, this is a really painful one for really for anyone who's had experience or walked through it. God, we've seen family members go through this. Some of us this morning have gone through this. Some of our friends have walked through this. And so God, I ask that this morning that we would uh, leave all of our preconceived ideas on what it means to be married or divorced or remarried, even what we think the Bible says, but God, that we would just clear our slate and come with an open heart and open mind to see what you actually have to say this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus, and we give this over to you. Amen. All right, church, look with me at Matthew 5. I'll read verses 31 and 32. It says, It was also said, 
Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. And so we, we see them each, each week. We're looking at these six different areas of relationships, and they're always trying to figure out a way around the law. They're, they're, they're followers of the law, but they're trying to figure out a way around the law. Whereas we see Jesus is focused on the institution of marriage itself. And so the way that they framed the question to Jesus was to pull out from him what basically what was the legitimate uh, means or grounds for divorce. What, what, what is that line, Jesus? For what, what cause might a man divorce his wife? Was it, is it for one cause? Is there only one issue and that's okay? Or is there, is there several issues? Or, or are there small issues that all build together and that gives you grounds for divorce? Now what we see is Jesus' reply was not a reply. Jesus, as common as Jesus does, is he kind of declines to answer their question, at least the way that they want him to answer their question. Instead, he asked a counter question about the reading of Scripture. What Jesus does is he refers back to Scripture, which is where we're going to go. So in order to understand God's view of marriage and divorce, we need to connect everything together and look at other aspects of Scripture. So it's, it's always important to do this kind of a, a cross-reference of Scripture instead of always uh, studying a passage isolated and, and alone. This is how we easily rip things out of context, but it's good to look, say, did Jesus address this anywhere else in Scripture? And if so, let's look there and let's see if there's a consistency there. And so it's important to recognize, as we on the front of here, that, that man did not invent marriage. Okay, We did not come up with this idea, but God did. Genesis 2.24, so all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in the New Testament, we looked at Ephesians last year at Sojourn, so you might remember this, but Ephesians 5, verse 31 32, says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what are these passages telling us? They're telling us that we were brought together, man and woman, in the, in the covenant of marriage as one flesh, but not primarily for marriage. We weren't brought together primarily for sex. We weren't brought together pr primarily for companionship. We weren't even brought together primarily for the multiplication of starting a family. Now, it does include all of those things. It includes marriage and sex and family and, and, and children, all those things. It includes all of that. But primarily, a man and a woman were brought together. Why? To be a living, a breathing, and a physical picture of the, to the world of Jesus' relationship to the church. And so marriage, this is why it's not a man-instituted thing. And so when it comes to um, politics, and we're talking about the institution of marriage, and who can get married, and who can't get married, ultimately, when we take the big picture view, and take, take a step back and go, where did marriage come from? It came from God himself. And what was the purpose? The purpose was that we could be a picture to the world of Jesus and Jesus' relationship to the church. So marriage then, according to Jesus' exposition of its origins, is a divine institution. Have you ever thought about marriage? Your marriage is a divine institution by which God permanently makes between two people, that's key, permanently makes between two people who decisively and publicly leave their parents, as we see in the, the verses in Genesis and Ephesians, in order to form a new unit, a, a family um, unit themselves, unto society, and then what happens? 
It says the two become one flesh. They're, they're welded together. They're bonded together as the never-ending, unbreakable picture of Jesus' love for you. And so we think about Jesus' love. There's nothing you can do to break his love for you. There's nothing that you can do to end his love for you. And that is the picture that marriage is supposed to be. And that marriage, that's why in the good times and the bad, till death do us part, what that really means is that you're showing the picture that, man, we go through these roller coasters of life in our marriage, in our families. But the reason we stick together, because we are a picture, albeit a pale reflection of Jesus' love for the church, for you and for me. Look at, uh, or, or let, me, let me read for us Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. It says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in order to help us further understand this passage in Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, we actually need to forward, um, look a few pages forward to Matthew chapter 19 and look at verses 6 and 7. You can turn there if you like, but Matthew 19, verses 6 and 7. This says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, of course, he's referring back to the Old Testament where we see uh, this, this being a, a permissible certificate of divorce that Moses said um, you, could, you could give to one spouse. Now, the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. In other words, they were taking what Moses did and making that a command and saying, this is something that you must do. But what Jesus does is what Jesus calls us a concession. Now, we're probably all familiar with the word concession right now because at least as of this recording, our current president has not conceded um, to the um, former vice president as far as the election goes. Now, I'm just going to leave that right there. So we're familiar with this term, but what, what they were making command, Jesus calls it a concession to the hardness of human hearts. In other words, God united you in marriage. Okay, so if you're married this morning, think about it this way. Regardless of how you're currently viewing your spouse, God united you in marriage. Nobody else did that. I don't care what the court system said. I don't care who signed the papers. It was God who united you in marriage. And even if you're on the brink of thinking, I want to get out of this marriage, your marriage, church, listen to me, your marriage was not a mistake. And so what we see is Jesus never gives permission for divorce as the Pharisees were looking because that would be him giving his blessing. So for Jesus to, to say, here's my permission, it's like him saying, here, let me bless this ununion, this unsanction of your marriage, which he never did that. What he did give them was a concession for divorce. Now, the Pharisees respond to Jesus' exposition of the institution of marriage and permits by asking this. They say, Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Then they look at Jesus' own quotation and, and the verses we're looking at this morning and the Sermon on the Mount, and it was similar. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So you're thinking, so Jesus is saying he's, there's a concession here, but it sounds like he's going to be giving permission at the same time. So it's always important to know the context that then, and it helps us understand it for our context now. So here's what was happening. The Jewish people of, of this day, they, were, they took and misused and abused this teaching. Here's what I mean by that. So you'd have a Jewish marriage, 
and they knew they would be committed and, and to not divorce, but they, they knew there was this, this, um, this clause that they could get a certificate of divorce. And so what they were doing is, let's just say a Jewish man saw another lady. And he said, man, I'm attracted to that lady. In fact, I, I would like to be with that lady in ways that I'm not supposed to be with her because I'm a married man. Now, they knew the Ten Commandments. They didn't want to commit adultery, so they weren't going to go and, and sleep with this other person. But what they could do, it says, because the clause was saying, if you can find something wrong with your wife, then you have permission to basically divorce her. So a Jewish person could say, man, I really like that lady, and I would like for her to be my wife. I'm not going to go do anything with her inappropriate right now because I'm married, but now I need to find a reason that I'm unsatisfied with my current wife. So maybe she burns dinner one night by mistake. It gets a little bit overcooked, and all of a sudden... The, the husband can say, hey, you know what? You burned my dinner last night. And they could slip in a certificate of divorce and say, now I'm free. I have the freedom to go and marry this other lady. This sounds ridiculous to us today, but this was actually happening. This is actually what they were doing. So it's by this framework, it's in this context that Jesus was addressing these people. But let's see where Jesus goes in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so it's in this context that Jesus has in mind when he quotes verse 31. Jesus isn't simply citing Moses. He's using words that were used in his day for laxity and permissiveness when it comes to divorcing one's wife. Once again, they had gotten really kind of lax. Once, I mean, come on, really? You're going to say my wife burned my dinner, so now I have permission to, to leave her and go marry another person? So how then do we see Jesus respond to the Pharisees about the regulations of Moses? We see that he attributes it to the hardness of their hearts. So they got so hard and callous of their hearts and almost what I call like putting the blinders on. And so they said, this is permissible. It's almost like they, they wanted to justify their own means and their own grounds for getting a divorce. And so doing, he did not deny the regulation was from God. He implied, however, that this was not a divine instruction, but only a divine concession to human weakness. So once again, this isn't God giving permission and God blessing it, but it is God saying there is a concession here because of the human weakness, because of your hardness of heart. And so it's for this reason that we see that Moses allowed you to divorce in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 19. But then what does Jesus do? He immediately, again, he refers to the original purpose of God saying, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Jesus says, yes, there is this concession, but he continuously returns and says, but this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's from the beginning. This is not how God designed it. And this is not how God desires it for you in your life, in your marriage. Thus, even the divine concession was in principle inconsistent with the divine institution. So even though it does exist, it's not completely consistent with God's actual heart. So I think any of us can find a reason that we say, you know what? There's times I'm just unsatisfied in my marriage. And maybe you've heard friends say, I'm just not happy any longer. And here's what's really, really worrisome to me as a pastor is I've had conversations with people and they say, I'm just not happy anymore, or that person's not happy, so they should be able just to leave their marriage. I'm like, wait a minute, when did it become ultimately about our happiness? I'm not saying I want you to be miserable, but we've somehow gotten so permissive about these things and not taking the institution of God seriously as we see Jesus teaching and pointing us to right here. But it does seem like, based on this passage, that there is one allowance, one exception, allowing for divorce. So look again back at verse 32 of chapter 5. It says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, 
except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that phrase at the beginning of verse 32, but I say to you, it indicates that Jesus does not accept the practice of divorce easily. He's not just saying, oh yeah, just go ahead and do it because I know you're not happy. There's kind of a hesitancy there because divorce had begotten so widespread in ancient times that God instituted a regulation through Moses. It becomes such a common practice, which is really why there became this institution with Moses. And it wasn't so that more people get divorced and make it easier. It was actually for the protection of the the sanctity of marriage. And it was also to protect women from being divorced because women specifically at this time, thankfully we're not in those days any longer, but if a woman got divorced, I mean, that was shame that would last with her for the rest of her life. She would, she would have to move, maybe move back in with her family or her family might even miss, um, disown her. I think about when we lived overseas and, and sometimes you would even see a, a Christian lady leave her Christian faith and go marry a, a Muslim or a Hindu man because they wanted to get married and be taken care of the rest of their life. But if, as soon as um, we actually saw this happen, and I was just heartbreaking. As soon as that man moved on and kind of got what he wanted and, and went on to somebody else, then she was un, suddenly was shamed in her culture and, and sometimes her, um, the rest of her life would just be one that was of shame and horrendous. And so we would see that happening at this time. And so Jesus actually, uh, he allowed this concession for the protection of marriage and for the protection of women. Now Jesus bases his teaching on God's original intention that marriage should be a permanent union between a man and a woman. So let me say that again, that Jesus based his, his teaching on God's original intention that marriage should be permanent and between a man and a woman as one flesh and divorce, what does that do? Divorce comes in and it breaks that union. It shatters that union apart. Now, in verse 32, in order to understand, we have to do a little word study, uh, specifically for us modern readers. The Greek word for sexual immorality used here is not the word for adultery. Okay, Even though it's translated as adultery, the Greek word actually used here is not the word for adultery. Instead, he uses the Greek word for porneia. It's this Greek word which pretty much means all forms of sexual immorality. So we kind of focus in, modern readers, in the English as adultery. And so we think, okay, if you've done that, you know, you kind of cross that line. There's a lot of other lines you can cross, but, you know, maybe we need to go through counseling. But if you cross this line, that means for divorce. But according to the actual Greek word used here, what this means is it could mean lust, it could mean pornography, it could mean masturbation, it could mean any other form of sexual immorality would actually be the grounds for divorce. So if we take what Jesus says here and apply it literally, this is what this would mean. Let's just say that you're down at the beach. My family went to Cannon Beach last week, although it's cold right now. But let's just say we're there in the summer on a, on a hot day, which we never get to Oregon coast, but just, just track with me. Or maybe we're in Southern California. And I'm with the family. And let's just say that a beautiful lady walks by. And I see her and I recognize the attraction. But let's just say I have a moment of weakness and I, and I slip. And I go from a notion of attraction to her that all of a sudden I'm lusting after her in my thoughts and my mind. If that were to happen, according to this passage, if we take Jesus literally, then Andrea would have means to divorce me for that and that alone. But this doesn't seem to line up with Jesus' teaching on the covenant of marriage. So what is going on here? What what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, you might say, Matt, are you advocating for more divorce? Because, I mean, I'm sure that people's thought lives and other things they do before they get to that, that ultimate line that we see here of adultery. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could lead to this. So what are we to do with this? 
So many New Testament scholars, in fact, the majority of New Testament scholars, remind us that Jesus is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And that is very important for the context of this. In every other gospel where Jesus says this phrase, he does not add this exception clause. It is only here in the gospel of Matthew that he adds this. And so at this time, when a man and woman were to be married, it was normal to have a time of betrothal. Okay, so what this means, we don't really have this today. The, the modern equivalent for us is between the period that you get engaged and that you actually get married. So some of you have big engagement parties and you have all your friends come and I guess now you have to wear masks and do all those things. But it would be in between that time of, of engagement and the time of marriage. And so it's in between that time that if you discovered something about your future spouse, if you discovered some kind of sexual immorality or, or even just anything else that you didn't like about them, then during that period, you would have grounds for breaking off the marriage. So that is actually the context and what it is referring to here. And so it's almost, it's actually more of a pre-marriage rather than once you are married. Because once you got engaged, I mean, I, I think about my own engagement. I feel like in the U.S. it's a little more willy-nilly. But I think about my own engagement in Argentina. I mean, it was so serious that it was basically that when we started dating. Once we officially got engaged, like we were getting married. In fact, we got legally married six months before we actually had our church wedding. But at the moment in between our engagement and our actual um, marriage signing of the certificate, if, if we had discovered something about one or the other, then we could we could have walked away. And no one would have said, oh, that's the same as getting divorced. It was said, man, you guys got really, really serious and really, really close to getting married, but you didn't follow through because you discovered something about maybe their lifestyle, about their sexuality. And so that is what the context is actually referring to here, which I think is really, really important for us to know and to understand. Now, now if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now, she isn't faithful with him. In fact, she sleeps with a lot of other guys. She even leaves Hosea and moves in with another guy. Now, if God was super cool with that, then he would say, hey, Hosea, just go ahead and leave her. Go ahead and divorce her. But that's not what we actually see God do. Instead, what does God do? God looks at Hosea and he says, I want you to go after her. I want you to pursue her. And no matter what it takes, I want you to win her back. Now, why is Hosea in the Bible? Why does God have to include this story? I think he includes it because Hosea represents Jesus. And who represents the prostitute? You represent the prostitute. I represent the prostitute. We represent the prostitute. But what we see is the never-ending, the, ne the story of God's never-ending pursuit of you and of me, his adulterous prostitute bride. This is why I think that even if adultery happens in your marriage, that you should pursue your spouse. Because why? I've cheated on Jesus thousands of times. I have gone to thousands of other idols, but Jesus has never left me nor forsaken me. And so if you really want this picture of a, of a marriage that says, until death do us part, here is your picture. Go and study Hosea this weekend. Now naturally, from time to time, someone will pull me aside and say, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you about something. And they'll say something to the extent of, I want to ask you about divorce. Now normally what they're doing is, is they're looking for permission for them or a family member to go after a divorce. But after preparing this message this week, I've come to a new conviction as a pastor that before I'll ever talk with someone about divorce, and so before you ever come and say, Pastor, I want to talk about divorce, first we will talk about marriage and we'll talk about reconciliation. And I want to make sure that you have an understanding, a clear understanding of those before we ever will even broach the topic of divorce. Because I believe if you have an understanding of a biblical marriage, meaning God's view on it, not your view on it, and if you have a grasp on God's call of reconciliation, then I believe that there would actually be a lot less divorce in the church and that we would see a lot less divorces taking place in the church. And so it is ultimately God 
not the state, not your pastor, not anyone else who unites you in marriage. I believe you first need to consult God before considering a divorce. Now, I would go even far as to say that for those in the church, and once again, I know we have some non-Christians joining us this morning, and praise God, I'm glad you're with us. But for those of you who say, I am a Christian, and so you're, you are in the church, divorce and remarriage decisions aren't to be made by you alone. You might say, well, it's my marriage, you need to butt out. No, 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 no. We are, we are called to be a community of faith together. And so that you need to consult your church body. Doesn't mean everyone, but you need to consult your church body. You need to consult your church leaders and we'll consult God together on that decision. Now, Scott McKnight, he provides several ways that we should think about divorce and remarriage in the church. First, he says, churches and pastors and followers of Jesus are challenged by these words to recommit themselves to the covenant nature of love and to marriage as a sacred union blessed and established by God. Too many Christians are divorced, are divorcing, and getting married knowing that divorce will be easy. I remember when I was engaged to Andrea. Actually, I was dating Andrea, and I was 19 years old. We had just started dating, and she sat me down in the first 10 minutes and said, what are your views on divorce? Because she knew that people in the U.S. flippantly would go and get a divorce, those within the church. And so she wanted to make sure that we had a biblical view of marriage and divorce. And so in the church, we need to ramp up our understanding and teachings on the nature of a covenantal bond, a union of love, what we call marriage, and the sacredness of marriage. Because divorce is never the will of God. Hear that again. Divorce is never the will of God, and it's only permitted because of the hardness of hearts of humans. Second, we have an obligation as followers of Jesus of holding in balance these two non-negotiable views, or virtues rather, of mercy and righteousness. And so when confronted with a failing marriage, if your friend comes and says, hey, my marriage is struggling and failing, you're not to judge that person at that moment. You are to be merciful to that person. You are to have empathy to that person and, and listen and to love them, but also to walk them along this journey because you still want to see them get reconciled. Third, no pastor or leader or church should hold this a a rigorous view of marriage, divorce, or remarriage without providing some kind of resources and, and some time and some pastoral attention to hold in, um, in balance with this rigorous view. Fourth, the fundamental disposition and orientation of pastors and churches and really all followers of Jesus should be towards the reconciliation of a husband and a wife. And so church, just like God never um, uh, really gave permission for divorce and he never desires divorce, we, as Christians, we should always have the goal of reconciliation. The gospel summons us to become peacemakers. The gospel summons us to have the, be agents of change and of reconciliation, and that includes all relationships, but specifically that includes our marriage. We're not called to just sit by and love and, and listen and say, well, let's just see what happens. We know they're struggling. It's none of my business. No, it is part of your business, and we are to be um, agents of reconciliation. Fifth, we need to Take into account this line of thinking that we've looked at this morning in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Six, the divorce decisions are to be rendered not by the state, but by discerning Christian leaders and churches. Once again, no follower of Jesus should, should pursue divorce firstly, uh, first off in the legal system. I think all the time, that's what we do. We say, go to the courts. No, we actually should pursue divorce within our church and within its leaders. Because once again, if we're going towards reconciliation, we can avoid the court system altogether. And the court and the judge are not the ones who are making, supposed to be making this decision for us. As followers of Jesus, as a community of faith, we are in fellowship with God and one another. And we're responsible to one another. We're accountable to one another. And Jesus, as our Lord and his teachings, 
as, as the practicing the ways of Jesus. And so we want to see each other remain faithful to that. And so we are, have a real responsibility as fellow followers of Jesus and Christians to the decisions being made, and these decisions should be made within the local context of this thing that we call the church. Seventh, remarriage is both permissible, and so if you are divorced, it's possible to get remarried, but we also see that marriage is, remarriage is not necessary. Now let me address a few groups as we wrap up this morning. Now every single one of us tuning in this morning fall into one of these camps. First, if you are single this morning, Make sure that you walk into your marriage with God's view of marriage, not the world's view of marriage. I think oftentimes we are being discipled, whether you're being discipled by the church or something outside the church, through, through media, through TV, and through, through friends. But make sure that you walk into marriage with God's view of marriage. Because when you get married, you are going to be a picture to the world of God's never-ending love. So that should actually cause some fear. That should cause some trembling. That should cause you to say, man, I really want to make sure before I get married because I want to be committed to this person until death do us part. The second thing I'd say to you single people, now, once again, I want everyone to listen. This is to the single people. So if you're already married, this is not, I'm not applying this to you. But if you're single, you still have a choice. And as a Christ follower and single, never marry a non-believer. Now, you might say that's a little bit harsh. I don't apologize for that. And the reason being that they don't and they won't have the same view of marriage as God's view of marriage. And if you are one who is pursuing um, holiness a radical pursuit of holiness as we're looking at every week in the Sermon on the Mount, then your marriage view is going to be very different than the view of a non-Christian. The second group of you I want to address is married folks. Now, I fall into that camp. Some of you are in great marriages this morning. It feels like you're walking on cloud nine. Some of you are in okay marriages. You can hit the occasional bump, but overall things are pretty good. And as some of you just might be in a really difficult season of marriage right now. Wherever you're at in marriage, be reminded that marriage is temporary. In heaven, the only marriage is between Christ and his church. And so do everything in your power to make sure that your marriage is a picture of the one to come. And if you are struggling, don't struggle alone. I think married couples, because there's a shame you wait till it's too late oftentimes, don't do that. Pick up the phone, tap a shoulder, let us know that you're struggling because we want to walk that journey with you. Because we want to see you reconciled because we love you and Christ love you. The third and final group of people I want to address this morning. Those of you who, who are divorced, who've had a divorce. Now, divorce is hard. It's, it's gut-wrenching. I've thankfully never walked through a divorce myself, but I've, I've walked friends through divorces, and it is horrible. I mean, no, there's no winners when it comes to divorce. Even if you don't have kids, I think it's even worse when you do have kids. But you might be asking this morning, is, is God displeased with me because I have a divorce in my past? Let me say this. Scripture is clear that God hates divorce. But... Scripture is also clear that God desperately loves you. And by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he says, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. But he also reminds us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you have a divorce in your past, I want you to hear that this morning. If you are a child of God, there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you aren't sure whether you walked through that marriage or that divorce or if you've been remarried, maybe you say, I don't, I don't know if I walked through that right. I'm even seeing things differently this morning. But if you are a child of God, let me assure you of this. God no longer sees your sin. He tells us that. But instead, God sees you as his beloved child, his beloved son or daughter, and he is well pleased with you. And so please don't leave this morning feeling any extra shame or trauma based on something that happened in your past. Now, what does it look like for you going forward? 
I'll take it alone with God. Maybe take our response time this morning to do that. Confess where you did it your own way and not his. And say, you know, I, I went into it. Maybe you weren't even a Christ follower and you walked through this painful experience. And maybe you were, but you just didn't have this biblical grasp and this view of, of God's view of marriage and God's view of reconciliation. And ask God to forgive you where you need forgiveness because he will forgive you. And once again, he loves you. And he's looking at you as his beloved. And for all of us going forward, we need to walk forward living out our marriages or our future marriages in a way that displays to the world the never-ending love of Jesus Christ. And so let me pray for us to that end. I'm going to pray for us. Joseph's going to come back up. He's going to lead us in worship through song. And then we'll finish our time together. God, I want to come to you and just take a moment as we reset our hearts on you. God, we've looked at a really difficult passage this morning, maybe one of the most difficult in the entire of the New Testament when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage. But God, we've been reminded this morning that you never desire divorce, that that is never your go-to option, but God, you desire reconciliation. So God, for the single people this morning, I ask that they would see a biblical view of marriage and a biblical view of divorce and remarriage, and God, that they would have their hearts set and be convicted to a biblical way as they enter into their relationships, just even as dating people and then as their future marriages. God, for those who are married this morning, God, regardless if we're in a great marriage or a rocky marriage or a horrible marriage right now, God, that we would be one to pursue reconciliation with our spouse, whether our spouse loves Jesus or doesn't love Jesus. And that we would be the one that says, you know what, I'm going to pursue this with everything that I have because I want to have a radical pursuit of holiness and look more like Jesus. I'm going to pursue reconciliation over what the world would tell me and even over my own happiness. And God, for those who are divorced or have a divorce in their past, God, I pray that they would not leave this morning feeling shame, but God, that they would see this ethic, this view of marriage, maybe in a whole new light. But God, that you would, they would recognize that now that they are in you, there is no condemnation but that you look at them as a beloved child of you, a son or a daughter. And we thank you for that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.